This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode features discussion of warfare, religious persecution, and circumcision that some may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. Modein, Israel, 167 BCE. The priest, Mattathias, watched as the Greeks marched into his city. Living out here in the country, the Jews had been relatively unbothered by their Greek oppressors. But these new arrivals did not bode well. A leader emerged from the column of soldiers. He said, Your king demands that you make a sacrifice to the gods of Olympus, the true gods. Do this here and now, and you will be rewarded with silver and gold. Behind him were two servants who placed an altar and a pig in front of the waiting Jewish people. Mattathias just glared. He would not profane this altar by spilling blood to a pagan god. But then he was shocked to see a member of his tribe walking forward, ready to do as the Greeks said and collect his reward. This filled the priest with rage. Were his people so ready to abandon their god for a few coins? This would not stand. He bellowed, I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors. My children, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that God made with our ancestors. Pulling a knife from beneath his robes, he ran up behind the traitorous member of his tribe and slit his throat. Then, in one quick movement, he raked the blade across the Greek leader's throat as well. Mattathias's people watched in shock, but only for a moment. They removed their own weapons from beneath their robes. Then they charged. It was the beginning of an uprising. It was the beginning of Hanukkah. Welcome to the Dark Side of a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. Today is the 10th installment in our Dark Side of Holidays series, 
The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. The story of Hanukkah is told to Jewish children every winter. The brave priest Judah, leader of the Maccabees, had just taken Jerusalem back from the wicked Syrian king. He rededicated the Holy of Holies, the Temple of Jerusalem, to the one true God, Yahweh, the God of his ancestors. Judah could only scrounge up enough oil to light the candle on the altar for one night. And yet, miraculously, it kept alight for eight nights, reminding all of Jerusalem that God was on their side. And yet, this story comes to us from about 350 CE, roughly 400 years after Judah rededicated the temple. Today, most rabbis agree that the story could be apocryphal, made up. So what is then the true story behind Hanukkah? And why did later rabbis think they had to change it? Was it really that dark? As we'll soon see, the dark side of Hanukkah is not one of miracles, but rather of bitter warfare over the right to practice one's religion. The real story of Hanukkah begins in 175 BCE, when King Antiochus IV came to the throne of the Seleucid Empire. He was part of a Greek dynasty that ruled from Antioch on the southeast coast of modern-day Turkey. Descended from one of Alexander the Great's generals, they had quickly conquered much of the Middle East and Persia though Greece itself remained elusive. Which is to say that King Antiochus had something to prove. To that end, he was determined to make the Israelites finally bend to the Greeks. In 175 BCE, he began to antagonize the Jews with a series of policies designed to offend their sensibilities. He was going to turn all of his subjects into model Greeks or die trying. He had a gymnasium constructed in the middle of Jerusalem, right next to the Holy Temple. Naked male athletes competed in foot races, wrestling, and more. Their activities glorified the human body, which was central to Greek artistic expression. Rabbinic literature scholar Eliza Salzberg writes that there was a clash between the Hellenistic focus on the body and Jewish value of modesty. Antiochus capitalized on this by forcing everyone who attended the gymnasium to do so in the nude. And according to ancient Palestine scholar Harry Oates, he didn't stop there. Antiochus made it a legal requirement to attend an event at the gymnasium at least once if you could afford it. 
And so every Jew in Israel was legally required to show up in the nude, which was against their beliefs, to watch Greek athletes, also nude, perform with their uncircumcised penises on display. That might sound like a fairly enjoyable tradition to some, but to the ancient Israelites, it was sacrilege. Circumcision was one of their most important laws. It symbolized a man's covenant with God. It also symbolized cleanliness and purity. Antiochus was directly mocking this belief, saying, Look here, according to your God's standards, we are impure. And yet, who's in charge? As bad as this was, the truly sacrilegious acts were yet to come. By 167 BCE, Antiochus had decreed that Yahweh was no longer to be worshipped in the Temple of Jerusalem. It's difficult to put into words how fundamentally destabilizing this was to the people of Israel. According to their beliefs, the Temple was first erected by King Solomon hundreds of years prior, following the specifications of Yahweh himself. It had been destroyed and rebuilt multiple times. That was bad enough. But for it to remain standing and not in service to the Hebrew God, that was unfathomable. Antiochus placed an idol to Zeus on the altar, and he ordered a regular sacrifice of pigs. Yet another slight to the Jews, as they considered pigs unclean and unworthy of sacrifice. Sex workers were permitted to operate on temple grounds. Circumcision was outlawed, as was the practice of Sukkot. This was an eight-day festival in which all Jews were required to make a pilgrimage to the temple. Little did the people of Israel know, it would be many years before they could do so again. And even then, Sukkot would be transformed into a new holiday. Scandalized by these changes, the most devout Jews fled to smaller towns such as Modein. Among them was the priest, Mattathias, and his five sons, John, Simon, Judah, Eliezer, and Jonathan. They formed a band of rebels known as the Hasmoneans. Their version of Judaism was as strict as it gets. They believed in such familiar tenets as not working on Sabbath, eating kosher, and covering one's body modestly. But they also had some pretty radical beliefs. They were known to kill Jews who didn't agree with their strict interpretation of the commandments. By today's standards, we would hardly consider these men heroes. On the other side, as oppressive as Antiochus was, Greek rule had brought some positive changes to Israel over the decades. Greek education and economic systems made the population more aware of the world beyond their borders and led to prosperity for those who dwelled in the cities. They had taken Israel from an isolated tribal culture to a player on the Mediterranean stage. This was cultural conquest. The Jews had not been willing, but some of them had come to appreciate the new way of life. Previous conquerors, such as the Babylonians, had allowed the Jews to maintain their culture and beliefs. Eric Gruen, an emeritus history professor at the University of California, Berkeley, wrote that, At first, most Jews didn't see Hellenism as the enemy or any way of compromising their sense of themselves as Jews. Most words we now associate with Judaism are, in fact, Greek 
including the word itself, Judaism. But Antiochus disrupted this careful balance. He was now forcing homogenous Hellenistic culture upon the Jews and forcing them to assimilate. As Rabbi Robin Podolsky points out, assimilation is precisely not cosmopolitanism. It is a privileging of the dominant culture, a universalization of an aggressive particularity. Antiochus was trying to stamp out the culture that made Israel what it was. He enabled radicals like Mattathias to rally people to his cause. The resulting war would lead directly to the creation of Hanukkah. But first, tens of thousands would die. Next, the Maccabean Revolt begins. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now back to the story. Though many are told that the story of Hanukkah is as simple as a candle burning for eight days straight, it's actually much, much more complex than that. As early as 175 BCE, Greek Emperor Antiochus began an attempt to Hellenize the Jews of Israel. He forbade many of their sacred practices and turned their temple into a shrine to Zeus. Many fled Jerusalem for the safety of the countryside. But when the Greeks threatened even these pockets of freedom, the fires of rebellion were sparked. In our teaser, we told the story of the priest Metatheus lashing out at Greek soldiers. They had come to his village demanding a pagan sacrifice. That story comes to us from 1 Maccabees. This is an ancient text that was likely included in the first Greek-language version of the Hebrew Bible, written down sometime in the first two centuries CE. With that in mind, we have to consider that the author was living a few centuries removed from the events he was describing. However, much of what is discussed is supported by other historical and archaeological evidence. It's also worth noting that both 1st and 2nd Maccabees, where much of the following story comes from, are not included in the modern Hebrew Bible or the Bible of most Protestant Christian denominations. Ironically, the tale of how Hanukkah began was considered apocryphal by ancient Jewish scholars. It's not that they doubted it actually happened but rather they wanted to downplay the events that took place to make others forget about them or doubt their authenticity. As we'll soon see, it was a dark history that didn't make for the best holiday storytelling. Mattathias's attack on the Greeks led to a full-on revolt. 
However, he himself died a few months later of unknown causes. It was at this time that his middle son, Judah, became the general of the rebel army. And it was he who had earned the Hebrew moniker Maccabee, which roughly means the hammer. The name expanded to describe all of his soldiers. There were not very many of them, perhaps only a few hundred to begin with, and yet this seemed to be enough. They're described in 1 Maccabees as the strongest, bravest men in Israel. Though they were surely brave, this kind of hyperbole speaks to the propaganda that Judah employed to rally more Jews to his side. In order to grow his army, Judah had to depict himself as more than human. He had to be an ordained savior. A key piece of this propaganda was the Book of Daniel. Today, we know this as one of the many books in Hebrew and Christian Bibles. It describes a Jewish expatriate, Daniel, living in Babylon in the 6th century BCE. He impresses the Babylonian king by sharing his visions and prophecies from God. According to ancient Greek scholar Pierre Vidal-Naquet, the book of Daniel was written to suggest that the Maccabees were bringing about a prophesied kingdom of saints. The heroic prophetic figure of Daniel was invented by Maccabees sympathizers as a way to communicate the idea that the current Greek kingdom ruling over the Jews would be the last foreign power to conquer them. In the story, Daniel prophesies that four beasts would cause chaos until a fifth kingdom arose blessed by God. The New Oxford Annotated Bible notes that the final beast is said to have ten horns. These match the ten kings of the Seleucid Empire, which Antiochus now ruled. So the Greeks were portrayed as a beast with Antiochus its chief horn, and Judah was the beast slayer. He was also depicted as the reincarnation of Joshua, the ancient warrior who served the prophet Moses. Judah was cultivating quite the image for himself. This was one reason later rabbis would find him controversial and try to separate him from the story of Hanukkah. But by and large, he lived up to that image. Before his father passed in 166 BCE, Judah won his first victory against the Greeks in the Battle of Maalei Livona. He ambushed the forces of one General Apollonius. The Greeks had 2,000 men, and the Maccabees only had 600. But the Maccabees prevailed, with Judah killing Apollonius by his own hand. Judah's military victories only continued from there. In 166 BCE, he ambushed the 4,000-member army of General Sharon. With only 1,000 Jews at his side, he once again routed the army and killed their leader at the Battle of Beth Horon. Judah followed this victory with an even larger one later in 166 BCE. Antiochus, frustrated by these defeats, sent some of his greatest military leaders to Israel. Chief among them were Nicanor and Gorgias. Nicanor and Gorgias had at least 5,000 men with them. Nicanor was so overconfident that according to historian Patrick Lynch, he bragged about all the Jewish slaves he would soon be able to sell in Antioch. Arriving in Israel, the Greek generals immediately set out to crush the revolt. 
Gorgias scouted ahead in search of Judah's army. But Judah's scouts spotted him first and told their leader that Gorgias was coming. Judah knew that the Greeks would expect him to attack Gorgias head-on, and once they were entrenched in battle, Nicanor would arrive with reinforcements for the Greeks. So instead, Judah left a small contingent behind to distract Gorgias and took the bulk of his army around to the coast where Nicanor was camped unsuspecting. Judah then took the risky move of breaking his army up into smaller contingents. They spread out, attacking Nicanor's army from multiple directions. This thoroughly confused the Greek general. Before he knew what had happened, he had already lost over half his army. Nicanor didn't want to become the next Apollonius or Shoran. He retreated, and when Gorgias returned and found the camp in ruins, he did the same. Judah's success on the battlefield was not so different from the successes of other small guerrilla forces throughout history. Like the rebels in the American Revolution, Vietnam War, and even Afghanistan, his small force was able to stand up to a larger, better-equipped army through a combination of speed and home field advantage. The results were spectacular. Judah had successfully repelled the Greek army. In just a year's time, he had grown his rebellion into a fighting force a thousand strong. And while he still didn't control Jerusalem, he had support throughout Israel. But before we paint Judah as too much of a Hanukkah hero, keep in mind he was still pushing his extreme beliefs on all of Israel. First Maccabees tells us that while Judah was winning his military victories, his followers were also rampaging through the countryside, forcing their strict version of Judaism on any Greeks or Hellenized Jews they came across. They killed Greek officials, they forcibly circumcised any Jew who wasn't already, and they even killed Jews found guilty of worshiping Greek gods. This part of the story naturally gets left out of many Hanukkah dinner table retellings. On top of this, Judah was also becoming a bit of a hypocrite. According to ancient Greece scholar Pierre Vidal Naquet, Judah made alliances with the Spartans in Greece and the Romans one peninsula over. Though these were pagan societies that the Maccabees would have considered to be just as barbaric as the Greeks under Antiochus, they were too powerful for Judah to ignore. Judah made other concessions in his beliefs as well. The Sabbath, a day of rest and contemplation, was a sacred weekly observance to devout Jews. But the Maccabees couldn't win a war if they took every seventh day off. So Judah suspended observance of the Sabbath for the soldiers in his army. He was breaking Jewish law while killing others for doing the same. But no one seemed to mind. As long as he kept winning, the Jews of Israel would eventually achieve freedom. It would be the first time in hundreds of years. And he was about to achieve his greatest victory of all. In 164 BCE, Antiochus was desperate for a win in the Mediterranean. He had failed in a campaign to increase his territory in Egypt, and now the Parthians in modern-day Afghanistan were threatening his eastern border. Now more than ever, he needed to put an end to the rebellious Jews in the heart of his empire. He called upon his greatest general, Lesius, 
According to ancient historian Josephus, Lesius's orders to the army were to conquer Judea, enslave its inhabitants, utterly destroy Jerusalem, and abolish the whole nation. The size of his army is up for some debate. First Maccabees claims it was a host of 60,000, while other sources put it at a more believable 20,000. Regardless of who you believe, Judah, now with an army of about 10,000, was outnumbered by at least two to one, or as much as six to one. However, he always fought against impossible odds. His army still knew the terrain better than the Greeks. They moved faster, and they had something to fight for. Some legends say that God sent an angel to guide them in the battle. While we can't confirm or deny that claim, it speaks to how the Jews believed that their cause was holy and that their victory was ordained by the supreme ruler of the universe. The Seleucid Greeks, meanwhile, were fighting for a king who was rarely home and an empire that was looking less and less stable as time went on. However, they did have both superior numbers and superior armaments. Their forces included chariots and war elephants. Two armies clashed at the Battle of Beth Zur. With the Jews still lacking traditional equipment, much of the fighting was hand-to-hand. Imagine a whole valley of men literally ripping each other apart, smashing rocks into each other's heads, pushing each other into the mud. It's possible that in such conditions, many of the Greek advantages were nullified. War elephants were notorious for panicking and stampeding around the battlefield, killing friend and foe alike. And chariots likely had no room to maneuver amidst such thick fighting. Ultimately, it seems that the angels were on the side of the Jews. Somehow, their smaller force managed to kill 5,000 of the Greeks and frighten the rest of them into retreating. Judah had definitively proven that the Seleucids held no power over his people. Their largest army was no match for this small one. He was truly the hammer of God, and it was time for him to take his throne. Later that year, in 164 BCE, he brought his men to Jerusalem and killed the remaining Greeks that were occupying the area. A few Greeks escaped and holed up in the Acra fortress, which overlooked the city. It was a reminder that even though he had won the battle, Judah did not rule over a united Israel. But it was time for the greatest moment in his career, the rededication of the temple. The men found it in a state of disrepair, cracked and crumbling with rubble lining the halls. It was a phantom of what it had been in the days of King Solomon hundreds of years earlier. But as always, Judah had hope. He found the altar and built a shrine to Yahweh with some uncut stones. In front of the altar, he lit a candle. People of Jerusalem rejoiced. Their celebration lasted for eight days. A holiday was born. But in just a generation's time, everything would change. The temple was destined to be destroyed. Next, we'll learn the dark fate that befell the Maccabees and explore how Hanukkah became the holiday we know today. 
With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. The Maccabean Revolt, beginning in 167 BCE, repelled the Greek Seleucids from Israel in the span of just a few years. The leader of the Maccabees, Judah, rededicated the Jerusalem temple to the Jewish god Yahweh in 164 BCE. Many saw his rule as the beginning of a never-ending holy dynasty ordained by the supreme being. Adding to that idea was the fact that the Jews' greatest rival, the Greek emperor Antiochus, died that same year while fighting the Parthians in the east. It was said that he was stricken with a terrible illness. What more proof did Israel need that the Maccabee cause was just? This is the complicated and bloody backstory behind a beloved modern holiday, Hanukkah. Though the celebration focuses on the eight days of reverence in the reconsecrated temple, it often overlooks the tens of thousands that died for this to happen. It also overlooks the fact that Judah and his Maccabees were extremists. They put many other Jews to death who didn't agree with their strict interpretation of religious law. And although Judah had defeated Antiochus and retaken Jerusalem, the fighting was far from over. With Antiochus dead, Lesius, the general who Judah had defeated in battle, was now interim leader of the Seleucid Empire. He would not forget the humiliation he suffered at the hands of the Maccabees. In 162 BCE, Judah finally attempted to take the fortress of Acre, which overlooked Jerusalem. It had been one of the last holdouts for the Greek loyalists since he retook the city. But before that could happen, Lesius used the conflict at the fortress as an opportunity to surprise Judah with another attack. He charged into Jerusalem, bringing just as many men and even more war elephants than before. Judah was faced with a difficult decision. Attack Lesius's army head-on in a traditional battle, or retreat and use his famous guerrilla tactics? The hammer assumed his enemy wouldn't be expecting a traditional fight, so he stood his ground, hoping that God would be on his side once again. Unfortunately, this time, the angels didn't help him. The large army quickly overwhelmed Judah's much smaller force. Judah's younger brother, Eliezer, met a particularly macabre end. Trying to rally his troops, he ran toward one of the war elephants, stabbing it in the belly. He succeeded in killing it, but forgot to step out of the way. As the elephant fell, it crushed Eliezer beneath it. This did very little for troop morale. It was yet another chapter that would be left out of the official Hanukkah story. Judah's army was forced to retreat, 
This spelled the beginning of the end for their rebellion. The next two years had their ups and downs. Jerusalem was lost again, though Lesius was more respectful of Jewish religious practice than Antiochus had been. This prompted a lot of local resentment towards Judah, who was increasingly seen as an extremist. When Greek general Nicanor returned in 161 BCE to challenge Judah again, he counted many Hellenized Jews among his ranks. This has led many modern scholars to see the Maccabean Revolt as something of a Jewish civil war, although ultimately the majority of the conflict was between the Maccabees and the Greeks. A few years had passed, but Judah was still the better strategist. When he met Nicanor in battle for the second time, he put an end to him, adding yet another Greek general to his kill count. But this would be his final notable victory. For all his courage and skill, Judah never seemed to realize that he was facing empires with limitless resources. The Greeks would keep coming, and eventually, he would face a general with not only a greater force, but a superior strategic mind. Later in 161 BCE, Lesius was shockingly murdered by the late Antiochus's cousin, Demetrius. And in case you weren't exhausted yet by all of these Greek names, that led to a new general, Bacchides, being dispatched to Israel to finally put an end to the revolt. The new emperor, Demetrius, was going to succeed where his cousin had failed. In 160 BCE, Bacchides led 20,000 men against Judah's remaining force of a mere 1,000. In addition to the 20,000 infantry units, Bacchides had also brought 2,000 units of cavalry. These were devastating on the battlefield, and Judah had little to no experience fighting them. Before, he had been able to rout larger infantry forces with his faster, more skilled warriors, but he had no advantage over cavalry. Judah chose to charge Bacchides' personal guard, and at first he was able to defeat a portion of the horsemen. But he failed to notice the other half of the cavalry riding up from the rear. They slammed into his men, instantly killing many of them. Meanwhile, the 20,000 units of infantry surrounded Judah's troops. All the Maccabees could do was keep fighting as the larger force slowly swallowed them whole. Eventually, Judah, the hammer of God, was overcome by the hooves, shields, swords, and spears of the enemy. As the Hanukkah hero lay dead on the battlefield, his surviving men surrendered. The Maccabean Revolt was finally at an end. It was a far cry from the uplifting rededication of the temple just four years earlier. But this unhappy ending wasn't without a hopeful epilogue. There were two remaining sons of Mattathias, Simon and Jonathan. They would dog Bacchides for years to come, and two decades later, in 140 BCE, the Greeks finally gave up. They departed Israel, never to return. The remaining devoted Jews formed a new government, which would come to be known as the Hasmonean dynasty. They would rule for just over a hundred years until the Romans arrived in 37 BCE. Once again, the Jews lost control of Israel. 
The Romans even destroyed the temple in 70 CE. This brutal cycle of rebellion and conquest might seem discouraging, and indeed, it led to a reshaping of history. In later centuries, the story of the Maccabean Rebellion became less about a grand military campaign and more about how, for at least eight days, the Jews had managed to keep the oil in the temple lit. Rabbi James Ponette wrote that the rabbis of the third century wanted to shape an inward-looking Judaism. They chose to portray the Jews as a historically small, proud people ready to martyr themselves in the battle against tyranny. Which is to say, they wanted the Jews to accept that foreign rule was inevitable, and they had to find a way to practice their faith within that system. By 200 CE, when Hanukkah was first taking shape, the leaders of the Jewish people knew that further fighting was not going to lead to a free Jerusalem. Ultimately, men like Judah had been short-sighted. They caused thousands of deaths and gained little ground. Better to rebel quietly, or in more extreme cases, to allow oneself to be martyred as a way to show the Romans that they would rather die than give up their God. One death was better than a mass slaughter. Judah was an extremist, and he was destined to lose. But that's not to say that his struggle was pointless, that it changed nothing. In 167 BCE, the Jews were in real danger of losing their culture and being completely absorbed into the Seleucid Empire. Historian Dov Gera writes, that Antiochus's persecution of the Jewish religion was unprecedented in the ancient world. Had his policy succeeded, Judaism would have ceased to exist, and Christianity would have never had the climate from which it would later evolve. And so the Maccabean Revolt prevented the complete eradication of Jewish culture, allowing it to persist and even inspire new religions that billions follow today. For all his flaws, Judah was thus one of the most influential people in human history. This perhaps helps to justify why his image has been cleaned up over the centuries. It's hard to fault the ancient rabbis for wanting to see him in his best light, kneeling before the altar in the temple. Rabbi Michael Springer writes that this reinvention is a natural part of Judaism. She says, Judaism has always evolved. Hanukkah isn't mentioned anywhere in the Bible, and suddenly we say we're commanded to say prayers for this holiday we invented. In fact, Hanukkah is the great symbol of our evolution. The holiday has always adapted to fit the needs of its believers. For many centuries, it was a relatively minor observance on the calendar. But in the early 20th century, the Jewish immigrants of the United States, half a world away from Jerusalem, would need the holiday to evolve again. Michael Feldberg, executive director of the George Washington Institute for Religious Freedom, writes that by the 1890s, Christmas was firmly established as America's premier season for gift giving. For Jewish immigrants feeling pressure to shed their European ways, exchanging gifts with neighbors at Christmas time signaled their adaptation to their new home. But once again, there was the fear that they would lose their Jewish identity. 
And so Hanukkah, which typically falls close to or even on Christmas, became not just a candlelighting observance, but a larger festive celebration filled with gift-giving. And eating. Although that's where the dark side of Hanukkah begins to creep in again. Fried food is particularly popular on Hanukkah, meant to pay homage to the oil that Judah lit in the temple. Sufganiyot, a delicious type of fried donut, is especially popular. According to journalist Judy Maltz, a number of Israelis nearly choke to death on these delicious treats every Hanukkah. But it's all part and parcel for a holiday that was born out of the most trying of circumstances. After all, it's not Hanukkah unless a little danger is involved. As one old joke goes, every Jewish holiday can be summarized as thus. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, it's a very scandalous Christmas as we travel back to ancient Rome and explore the festival of Saturnalia. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like The Dark Side Of, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Greg Castro, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.